this time. Go to the back and get taught on their level there. All right, praise the Lord for the kids that we have here. Please continue to be in prayer for Dave and Betty Barton, uh, just a really swell, faithful couple, soldiers of the Lord, and she's been in the hospital for the last few days, and just pray for them if you would. Good to have you with us today, Brother Dave. We are praying for you. We're in Judges chapter 19, Judges chapter 19. In 1960, Israeli undercover agents kidnapped one of the worst killers in Hitler's army from his hideout in South America. His name was Adolf Eichmann. They took him to Israel to stand trial for crimes against humanity. Prosecutors called from a long list of witnesses who had seen Eichmann commit those many atrocious crimes. One witness they called was a small elderly man called Yehiel Dinur, who had escaped death in Auschwitz. Uh, when it was his day to testify, Dinur entered the courtroom and he stared at the man who had caused so much death in Auschwitz. Uh, the man who had murdered Dinur's friends, he had murdered hundreds of Jewish men, women, and children personally. And there he sat in a bulletproof glass booth. You know, Yehiel Dinur, as the eyes of the two men met, Something happened that shook the entire courtroom. Dinur stood in silence. He looked at the man who had done all those horrible, horrible crimes, and he began to sob uncontrollably. He collapsed to the floor and had to be carried from the courtroom until he was composed enough to come back and testify. What made him cry like that and sob and collapse? Later, he was interviewed on TV by Mike Wallace, and this is what he said. He said, I've always pictured Mr. Eichmann as this hideous monster who had nothing but evil in his eyes. But when I saw Eichmann that day, a small, older man with soft eyes and a vulnerable expression on his face, I saw that he looked just like an average man. And he said it was at that moment that he realized Everyone has the same capabilities for great evil. Uh, he said he began to sob because he was afraid of what he might do in a different set of circumstances. He told Mike Wallace, I saw myself in, in Eichmann and it scared me to death. And then he finished by saying that all of us have an Adolf Eichmann lurking somewhere within us. Something to think about, isn't it? Today we... Look at our last message out of the book of Judges. And I'll be honest with you, I, I've struggled for two weeks whether or not to preach on today's passage. It's dark, it's ugly, it's repulsive, it's nauseating. One of my goals is when you come to church on Sunday morning to lift you up and to encourage you. The last thing I want to do is subject you to a horror show. But I do want to tell you today that life without God is a horror show. Show. And it's a, it's a desperate situation in which judges found themselves. We've been looking at the book of Judges between, it was between the period of Joshua, when Joshua's term ended, until the kings. And the book of Judges goes from conquest to compromise with the people around them that lived around their area. And we've seen this throughout the book, this sin cycle 
For 350 years, they continued on this cycle that we've looked at numbers of times as we look at different characters in Judges. The cycle went like this, a rejection of the Lord, followed by a rebellion from the Lord, followed by a retribution of the Lord, followed by a repentance toward the Lord, followed by restitution by the Lord. And so they would do wrong, then they would repent and cry out to God, and God would send a deliverer and deliver them from their oppression, and then they would do good for a while, and then they would fall back into their sin again, back into the old uh, the, the ways that they lived before. Does that sound like anybody you know? Really could probably describe most of us, couldn't it? We get right with God and we want to go forward and we get everything straight and then we kind of fall back into old patterns and old habits. Hey, listen, don't ever quit. Uh, just keep on trucking for the Lord. And even though there are some failures, you keep on doing right and it will pay off in the end. Now, I mentioned that the children of Israel went from conquest to compromise. And then that compromise led to what it always leads to, chaos, utter chaos. And here in Judges 19, we see the culmination of what the book concludes with in chapter 21, verse 25, where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The Bible wants to make clear to us that life without God is unmitigated disaster. And I want to... So, by the way, I believe that's why... They give us the last five chapters of Judges. I remind you, this is the second of a two-part message we preached a couple of weeks ago. The first part, uh, which was Judges 17 and 18, and that is uh, that was about that rent-a-priest that uh, that the uh, Micah hired. If you haven't seen that message, that's a good. Uh, it's on our YouTube page. You can check that out. Not right now. Later. All right. But uh, but I want to just in review say that the last five chapters of Judges. They're not so much a chronological, uh, you know, it ended with Samson and it started with this period here, as much as it is, most scholars call this an appendix uh, to the book of Judges. The purpose is that after a list of deliverers and deliveries and rescues by God, here is what they were delivered from. This is a sort of appendix to show us a picture of what life in Israel was like during the time of the Judges. And friends, it's ugly. It's ugly. It records two episodes in chapters 17 and 18 and then chapters 19 and 20 uh, that illustrate the futility of life without God. Interestingly enough, and I found this fascinating, the first story is about religion. It's all about religion. Micah in chapter 17. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, Religion is the godless practice of man to try to attain justification by their own efforts. Religion, as I said, I didn't make a mistake, is godless. God is not in religion. And so, uh, in this first story, we met a man who built a temple in his own house, and then he hired a priest. Now, he decided that, I don't need a tabernacle uh, that God has set up. I don't need to go where he is at. I can do my own thing. He had a form of godliness, but he denied the real thing. Listen, friend, you cannot uh, replace God's plan for your Christian growth with something of your own insert here. You can't do that. You have got to go by God's plan. And God's plan for this age is the local church. It cannot be replaced. Now I mentioned last time, I'm glad people can use our live stream uh, for, that can't be here because of sickness or uh, you know the wind blew their house away or whatever the reason might be. 
uh, or they're traveling. But that live stream is never meant to replace services here at Bible Baptist Church. I really believe that you need to be here and be a part of it uh, if you at all possibly can be. But religion, religion is simply stepping outside of God's created plan and inserting your own plan in its place. That's religion. I'll give you a few examples. Oprah, Winbag, uh, Oprah Winfrey sorry, said this, One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way. There are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. The Bible says, in fact Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but through me. Mormonism says, the Father was once a mortal being who dwelt on earth. Jesus is just an exalted man. My Bible says in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Catholicism says, salvation is a gift from God, and the way we receive that gift is through the seven sacraments. The Bible says that salvation is a gift not of works, but totally of grace. Islam tells us that faith and good deeds will lead us to Jannah, which is their word for paradise. But my Bible says in Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which I have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. We could go on and on, but the point is, as I've said many times before, there are only two religions in the whole entire world. There's a religion that says do, and there's a religion that says done. And whenever we step outside of what God's plan is, it's always a disaster, as we saw in chapter number 17. Now, that was one side of the picture. And maybe because we're so accustomed to the religion of the world, the religions of the world, that we see that first story and it doesn't really carry any shock value to us. I mean, it was interesting. In fact, uh, in some ways it was almost comical. Some guy builds a temple in his own house. He hires a man to be his priest. Can you imagine? Well, that's no more ridiculous than what he did first. He fashioned a God to worship to. Can you imagine how silly it is to make something yourself and then worship it? You worship something you made? And then he hires a preacher, a priest, brings him in. You can't hire your own priest and then expect him to be your leader. All right, That's just not how it works. And so these are silly things he did. Uh, his, then his idol, his God, gets stolen. That's hilarious. His God, can you imagine worshiping a God that is subject to theft? His God gets stolen. And his rent-a-priest is there and confronts the thieves and says, hey, you can't take that. That God is holy. And so they turn around and say, hey, let me tell you, buddy, why don't you come with us and we'll pay you more. We'll give you more prestige than what you have now. And the, pre the rent-a-priest was a rent-a-priest. And so he said, let me pray about it. Okay, I'll go. And that's what he did. He took it. The problem with hiring your own priest is the fact that somebody's always willing to pay him more. So Micah chases them down and he comes and he, he comes up to this group of people and he says, Hey, you took my God. And they turned around, Yeah, big boy, what are you going to do about it? Well, they were stronger than he was. They couldn't really do anything. So he tucks his tail between his legs and goes on home. Silly story. But it shows us the futility of worshiping anything but God. Uh, it shows us because what you worship outside of God, you can always lose. Money, 
You're going to worship money? Many people worship money. Money is their God. But somebody could get elected and drive up inflation to the point that it's not worth that much anymore. That's just a hypothetical, but it could happen, amen? And so in Appendix 1, we saw that religion isn't, doesn't work apart from God. Then we come to part 2. We read this story and we're stunned by the violence, just how dark it is. It goes far beyond anything that we've already seen in the book of Judges, and we've seen some ugly stuff. By modern standards, it's repulsive, and by ancient Israelite standards, it was as well. But the message today is the same as it was when we looked at religion. Life without God is inconceivably tragic. We're all in desperate need of a Savior. Our passage today shows us just how dark the dark can get when you don't have God in the picture. Let's start reading. That was all introduction. <laughs> Ready to go now. Uh, Judges chapter 19, verse number 1. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. And his concubine played the whore against him and went away from him into his father's house, into her father's house, in Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. And her husband arose and went after her to speak friendly unto her and to bring her again, having his servant with him in a couple of asses. And she brought him unto her father's house. And when the father of the damsel saw him, he rejoiced to meet him. And his father-in-law, the damsel's father, retained him, and he abode with him there three days, and they did eat and drink and lodge there. Now, uh, he kept him for five days, and we'll, we'll skip a few verses as we go through here. And in the afternoon of the fifth day, look at verse number 10. But the man would not tarry that night, but he rose up and departed and came over against Jebus, which is Jerusalem, and there were with him two asses saddled and his concubine also with him. And when they were by Jebus, the day was far spent, and the servant said unto his master, Come, I pray thee, and let us turn in unto the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. And his master said unto him, We will not turn aside thither unto the city of a stranger that is not of the children of Israel. We will pass over to Gibeah. And he said unto his servant, Come and let us draw uh, near to one of the places to lodge all night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down upon them when they were by Gibeah, which belongeth to Benjamin. And they turned aside thither and to go in and lodge at Gibeah. And when they went in, he sat down in the street of the city, for there was no man that took them into his house to lodging. Behold, there came an old man from his work in the field at even, which was also Mount Ephraim, and he sojourned in Gibeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. When he lifted up his eyes, he saw a wayfaring man in the street of the city. And the old man said, Whither goest thou, and whence comest thou? Upshot of this part is that he takes them into his home. And uh, when nobody else would, he takes them into his home. We'll skip now down to verse number 22. Now as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man saying, Bring forth the man which came into thine house, that we may know him. The man, the master of the house, went out unto them and said unto them, Nay, my brother, nay, I pray you, do not so wickedly, seeing this man is come into mine house, do not this folly. Behold, here is my daughter, the maiden, and his concubine. Them will I bring out now, and humble ye them, and do with them what seemeth good to you, but unto this man do not so vile a thing. But the men would not hearken to him, so the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them, they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning 
When the day began to spring, they let her go. Then came the woman in the dawning of the day and fell down at the door of the man's house, for her Lord was till it was light. And our Lord rose up in the morning and opened the doors of the house, went out to go his way, and behold, the woman was his concubine was fallen down at the door of the house, and her hands were upon the threshold. And he said unto her, Up, and let us go, or let us be going. But none answered. Then the man took her upon his ass, and the man rose up and got him into his place. Father, it's a terrible scene reading about, but help us to apply it in a way today that will be a help to us in our time and in our day and our personal lives. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to realize the absolute tragedy and futility of trying to live life without you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to preach this morning on life without a king. Life without a king. The opening words tell us when there was no king in Israel. It reminds us that they again were doing right in their own eyes. Right in your own eyes does not mean right in God's eyes. Because, friend, God does not judge you according to your standard. He judges you according to His standards. And so here in this story, we're introduced to another unnamed Levite. The Levite is introduced as having a concubine. This is sort of a second-class wife. It's sort of a wife, but really, if we're going to be honest about it, she was just a legalized sex object. That's all she was for him. The Levite is both called the husband in verse 3, and he's called the master in verse 27 of this woman. There is, this is in no way a God-sanctioned relationship. God makes clear in Genesis 2.24 that marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. But this Levite here we see, he is more concerned with self-promoting relationships. In verse number 2 we see that she had one or more, two or more affairs, who knows, and then ran back home to mom and dad's. What she did was legally a double violation. She, she ran out from a marriage, but also she ran out uh, from her master. And so the Levite waits four months to go after her. He evidently wasn't too bothered about her being gone, but eventually maybe it was something to do with status, or maybe it was simply a physical desire. He went after her. The concubine's father welcomed him. The Bible says he retained him. Uh, he persuaded him to stay for five days. Now, culture did demand this type of hospitality, but seems like there's something more going on here because if you read the verses in between what we read, uh, the guy tries to leave like three times. And he doesn't let him leave. Oh, please stay a little longer. And what he's doing, I believe here, is uh, he, he, it, it describes him as over-eager and almost desperate. Why? Because the penalties for adultery and for leaving an owner were severe, even up to death. So the father seems to be making nice so the Levite will not press charges. Now, interestingly, there's nothing at all in the story that says the woman was persuaded. If you see, they came there and he and, he and her father talk about her, uh, all the interactions between them, both the father and the husband treat this woman as an object. One wants to avoid disgrace, one wants to satisfy his uh, fleshly desires. Neither one of them really care about this woman. All throughout the story, we do notice that we're not given any of their names. For one, it's such a horrible scene uh, that, that they're not listed. But secondly, I think also it just gives us a picture of, of, we're not naming this. This was the general way that it was in Israel in those times. This is what the Levites thought. This is how fathers lived. This is how women were treated. It is a dark picture about to get darker. After five days... In the afternoon, they finally wrenched themselves away. 
they set off towards Jebus. Now, in the time of David, this would become Jerusalem, but now it remains Canaanite. And as they reached Jebus, Levite servant, uh, the Levite servant wanted to stop. And Levite said, no, no, no. We're not going to stop in a pagan city. We're going to go four miles further. Gibeah was about four miles past Jebus. We're going to go a little further, and we're going to stop where God's people live. Because after all, ladies and gentlemen, should you not expect better from God's people than you do from the world's people? Should you not expect more hospitality from God's people? Shouldn't God's people give you more of a feeling of safety and security than the world's people? Should be the case. Well, they go on. As the sun set, they reach Gibeah and they stop to stay the night. Now, I want to explain one part here that might be confusing uh, so we'll understand Gibeah did not at that time have a Holiday Inn Express or a Hampton. It's a different time. What people would do is they'd come to town, they would sit in the town square, and they would wait for somebody to invite them to their home. That's why hospitality was such a big deal in that uh, time, in that age. But the strange thing was that nobody had them over. Nobody invited them. Nobody opened their home to them. And this was an odd thing because uh, people usually would fall over themselves to be uh, hospitable. Well, we find out later why nobody wanted to be responsible for these travelers. Nobody wanted to bring the kind of thing to their home that did happen. Finally, uh, uh, we read about the old Ephraimite speaks to him, hearing who they were, welcomes him into his house. Verse 20 hints to us that there's something more sinister about this town than just apathy. Whatever you do, don't spend the night in the street, is what he says. What is that? This is a, not a Canaanite town. This isn't the world. This is God's people. This is God's land. Why would it be so dangerous to be here? We find out in verse 22. Some men beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man saying, Bring forth the man that came into thine house that we may know him. Now, if, if you, anybody who reads the Old Testament, you know that the term know him is referring to sexual activity. Uh, a man knew his wife and she conceived. It says it all throughout the Bible. So the owner goes out and pleads, hey, this man is my guest. Don't do so wickedly. But then he does something horrific. He offers his own daughter and the concubine of the Levite to these wicked men. And this is what he says to them. Humble ye them. Do with them what seemeth good to you. Isn't that what everybody was doing in those days? Whatever was right in their own eyes? So he just takes it a step further. Do with them. What kind of monster offers his daughter to men like this? And it says, humble ye them. That means, uh, it comes from one original Hebrew word. It means to humiliate, to afflict, to mishandle. Do what you want with them. So to protect his house guest, he offers up two women, one of them his daughter, basically up to rape. Why? Because this Ephraimite, just like the Levite, sees women as property, expendable. And uh, this is a terrible position they find themselves in. What happened in Gibeah is very similar to what happens to Sodom in uh, Genesis chapter 19. Strangers come uh, to the town and men surround the house and they pound the door and they demand to have relations with the men. Lot begs them not to do this and, and then to try to appease them, offers his own daughters to them instead. The difference is that in Sodom, the visitors were angels, and they struck the men blind. But this isn't Sodom and Gomorrah. This is God's people. This is God's land. This is Israel. Verse 25. So the men took his concubine and brought her forth unto them, and they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning. 
I imagine here as I read this story, uh, when it says here in verse number, uh, let's see here, verse number 25, but when the men would not hearken to him, so the man took his concubine. As I was trying to picture the scene here, I can see her maybe uh, huddled back in a corner just trying to make herself small. Please, please don't let this be happen to me. And then he goes and wrenches her by the arm and thrusts her out the door, slams the door behind her, and now she belongs to these men. And friends, this is not a fairy tale. This really happened. This is real. And we should feel repulsed. We should feel upset. You see, Sodom is the great Old Testament example of rebellion against God that rightly brings judgment on itself. The parallels between the pagan city of Sodom and the Israelite Gibeah is pretty frightening. Because here are people. They have been given the covenants of Abraham and Moses. They have seen the exodus from Egypt. They have the tabernacle. They have had more recently uh, many deliverers come along and, and uh, seen God do great things. Yet despite all this, God's people proved to be no better than pagan nations and they had, who had none of those blessings of God. God's people have become like Sodom. Well, the next verses are gut-wrenching in their brutality. At dawn, after a whole night of unspeakable horror, the woman is set free. And the Bible tells us here in very short language, we can kind of get the picture. She is coming back to the house of the man that is hosting them. Her rotten, no good, scum husband is asleep in bed, doesn't even care enough to wait up. And so she is so injured and so messed up from her uh, horrible experience. She, we see her kind of making her way up to the door and as she gets close to the house, she must have went down to her hands and knees no longer being able to support herself. And, and then as she crawls up to the door, doesn't have quite enough strength to reach up and open the door and maybe reaches out to try to knock on the door and at that last bit of effort, her hands just collapse down and the Bible says that they fell on that jam of the door there. And she was, presumably she died. No one cared enough to as much as check on her. The Levites inside, fast asleep, didn't even care enough to wait up for her. When he did get up, look at verse number 27. And our Lord rose up in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way. Behold, the woman, his, his concubine, was fallen down at the door of the house and her hands were upon the threshold. Evidently, he wasn't even going to go try and find her because the Bible says he was ready to go out and go on his way. But he opened the door... And he said, well, looky here. There she is sleeping. And he says to her callously, up and let us be going. I don't know about you, friend, but I read that and it sets my blood to boiling. What a callous, cruel, cold-hearted brute this man is. I, I said that likely she died on the doorstop, but you know, the Bible doesn't tell us she died on the doorstop. Uh, this guy is such a horrible person he might have let her die and expire, and, and, uh, the, or he might have killed her himself because what he does next is he, he basically cuts her up into 12 pieces and then sends those pieces all over the coast of Israel, sparking the first civil war that Israel would ever see. How should we respond to these events in Judges 19? Well, first off, we should mourn. These are God's people. They are our spiritual ancestors. And we have a vivid, vivid illustration here. God's people are not above 
wicked sin. That's why the Bible tells us to take heed lest we fall. Uh, we, they show us here an extent, uh, to an extent, ourselves. The danger for us in an account like this is that we look at something like this passage here and we compare it to our life and we say, oh, we're nowhere near that bad. See, we have two villains in this story, the Gibeonites who committed this horrible, vile act and then the Levite that enabled them to do it with his own inaction. The brutality of this story leads us to disconnect from it altogether. We think as we look at it, hey, we don't live in this time anymore. No, our society is not nearly this bad. Oh, really? May I remind you the response just this last week of the national media and prominent leaders of our nation over the fact of one simple uh, uh, declaration that a baby might live instead of being killed. Oh, we don't cut up our concubines and send them all over the country like this Levite did, but we kind of do the same thing inside the womb. We're just in a different time. We do it in a little bit more acceptable way. But we live in a wicked time just like he did. And the book of Judges repeatedly <coughs> demonstrates that that Israel was enslaved by the pagan cultures around them. And it shows us how we can allow ourselves to be shaped and also enslaved by our culture rather than the Lord's. Now let me ask you this, how does that happen? Does it happen by us joining the occult? Do we have to go to secular seminars? Do we have to go embrace uh, humanistic anti-God philosophy? No, and no, and no. The Bible tells us in Judges two times how we achieve this type of enslavement. It's found in verse uh, chapter 17, verse 6, and chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's how you get there. Compromise with your culture, and then adapt, and then you'll find chaos. In other words, do what I think is right. In other words... Do what I want. In other words, life without God. I'll use the words of Hollywood. Cringe every time I hear these words. You just need to follow your heart. If that's about the dumbest advice you could ever get from anybody, that's it. Follow your heart. The Bible tells us in, that in uh, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who shall know it? Well, follow your heart. By the way, this is what happened to Eve in the garden. Satan did not come to her and say, Hey, Eve, I want you to do wrong. Who cares what God says? You just do what you want to do. No, he said to Eve, Eve, follow your heart. That's what he really said. He said, he questions God first. Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Always beware when Satan puts a question mark or God puts a period. Always, always beware of that. And then he denies God full out. You shall not surely die in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. In other words, he's saying to Eve, Eve, you just do what you think is right. You decide what is right. Can I tell you today, friends, we do not have the luxury of deciding what is right. This book here tells us what is right and what is wrong. We cannot take the sins listed in this Bible and slap a different name on them and call them something else and expect God to accept the new packaging 
what he says decides what is right and wrong. By the way, Satan takes this same tactic with teenagers. He doesn't come to teenagers and say, hey, I want you to rebel against mom and dad. You be as bad as you can be. No, he just wants teenagers to decide that they know more about what is right and wrong than mom and dad do. Right? Do your uh, spats with your teenagers start out like this? I know it's wrong. I want to do it anyway. Or, I don't see what's wrong with that. Right? Teenagers trying to decide, and that's the world that we live in. Society tells us that. There's no strict moral code. You decide what's right and what's wrong. This is exactly what was happening in Judges. We live in the time of Judges. We live in a time where society and the news media and really uh, psychologists and secular colleges tell us we decide what is right and what is wrong. That is the epitome of every man doing right in their own eyes. And how do you get such wickedness as we see in Judges 19? That way. Just doing whatever is right in your own eyes. And it will continue to go down and down and down and down. Isaiah 5.21 Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. We are headed for total disaster, friend, if we live life without a king, without God. There's another aspect to all this, cultural adaptation. We adapt to culture. When I was younger, I was afraid of the dark. Not like 10 years ago younger, like way younger. I was afraid of the dark when I was younger. Now that I'm older and pay the electric bills, I'm afraid of the light. You can understand that too. But I'd like for you to, I'd like to borrow your imagination today with me and walk into a dark room as we spent, in fact, I'd have used this to illustrate, but we got windows, so you wouldn't be able to see anyway. If you turn off the lights, you'd be able to see. But you walk into this pitch black room with me, and gradually you'll notice images taking shape. In fact, as we spend more time in the darkness, the more our eyes can make out. Now, what has happened? Well, our eyes are adjusting to the darkness uh, that, w that we've been thrust into. I remember as a small boy, when the light was blown out in my room, and that's right, that wasn't a mistake, it was blown out in my room, okay? I actually had still flame lights, lamps. Uh, we didn't have electricity. We didn't get that high flute and pole cord electricity until later uh, when I got older, but uh, we, when the light was blown out in my room and all of a sudden it was pitch black, I found out that during the daytime, it's just a coat thrown over a chair. But in the middle of the night when it's super dark and as you start to get that visual back, now it's a man standing there watching you, waiting for you to go to sleep so he can murder you. That's the difference between the light and the dark. But you know what I mean. As the darkness settles in longer, you start getting used to that light. The human eye is a wonderful thing. The human eye is com comprised I'm sorry, of different layers and internal structures. Each performs a distinct function. Light first passes through the clear cornea on the outside, the front of the eye. Then it goes through a watery substance called the aqueous humor. As the light continues through its pathway, it goes through the pupil, and that is that round opening in the center of the iris. The iris is made up of specialized muscles that is able to change the size of your pupil from very small to very large, regulating the light that enters in and out of your eyes. When all parts of the visual system are working, the eyes move together and they adjust to light and dark 
adjusting to the environment that you are in. May I say today, friends, the same thing can happen in your Christian lives. Maybe this has taken place to many in this room today. We spent so much time in the darkness that our spiritual eyes have begun to adjust. What shocked us 50 years ago, 20 years ago, is the norm today. What once appalled us is acceptable as a standard today. Gradually, maybe without even realizing it, your eyes have begun to adjust. Judges chapter 19 begins with these words, and it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. The idea is that men lived unto themselves, and it brought disaster into their lives. The truth is every single one of us needs someone to rule over us, or we deteriorate into villains. We are all capable of great wickedness. We need a king. And we must understand that we are more wicked and more desperate and more dangerous than we ever could imagine even about ourselves. What we need is a king to rescue us, to rule us, and to change us. Thank God for the gospel then. Because in Jesus Christ, that's exactly who we have. In Zechariah 9.9, he's announced this way, Rejoice greatly, O Jerusalem, a daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. When we accept him as our Lord and Savior, he will make us new. He makes us new. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. No longer are we relegated to the failure of our own choices. And can I tell you, friend, if you choose your own way, whether it be the path of religion or whether it be the path of flat-out wickedness, we've seen both of those paths and both of them are sadly deficient. They are completely disastrous without God. We will fail if we're left to our own devices. I read this this week and I don't know, I found it interesting because I like this kind of stuff, but the word live, the life we live, the word L-I-V-E, live, spelled backwards, is evil. And today men and women are living their lives backwards. We desperately need to get turned around, going the right direction. Something needs to happen for us to do that. That something is living under the rule of a king. When there is no king, there is anarchy and self-rule. It is marked by mayhem. Nowhere do we see that clearer than in the book of Judges, except maybe in the book of America. We see that too, unfortunately. We need to see that we need a king. And we have that king in the Lord Jesus Christ. In salvation, he saves us from eternal damnation in hell. In sanctification, He saves us from ourselves, which is ultimately what Israel needed. Because we see here, if you read these kind of stories, you start to think, oh my soul, Israel's number one problem wasn't the Midianites. It wasn't the Philistines. Israel's problem was themselves. And you know what your problem, my number one problem is, that person we see in the mirror. I don't know who you see, but I see a really handsome guy every morning. But that's the problem, Amen. That's the problem. We are our worst enemies. Because the truth is, left to ourselves, we create an incredible mess of our lives. 
Whether we do it by religion, or whether we do it living however we want to, we see two instances here. Neither one of them work. Both of them show us the absolute tragedy of living life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, from God himself. We need a king. And that's why over and over in the book of Judges, it tells us it was in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Twice that's in there. But like six times is the words in those days when there was no king in Israel. Here they are. They're living life the way they want to live it. They're doing whatever they want to do. And can I tell you today, friends, the will of Satan for your life is do what you want to do. Just do what you want to do. We talk about God's will, and God's will, uh, we, we, through discipleship, we go through his general will, his specific will, and all those different things, and, and there's things in God, Bible, how he wants us to live. Satan's pretty simpler, a little bit simpler. Just do what you want to do. You know, you can go to uh, an occult meeting on Sunday morning or help a little old lady across the street. Just don't go to church. That's all he cares about. It, you just do what you want to do. doesn't matter how good, how bad. Just don't do what God wants you to do. That's his ultimate goal. And here you have a people who did right in their own eyes. Not God's eyes, in their eyes. And they were despicable, and they were ugly, and they were hideous, and it was nauseating how they turned out. Whether it was by religion or by wickedness. Either one is empty without God. We need a king. Amen? Life without a king will lead you straight down. Don't let that be you. Let's have every head bowed today, every eye closed. I know this isn't the most feel-good message that we've preached all year, but I think it's a necessary one. Because I think every single one of us, <coughs> to some extent, try to live life without God. We make choices without Him. We, uh, we, we sometimes uh, do our own thing despite what He says. And we live as if we are our own God, as if we have our own religion. We do wrong in that way. Let me ask you, friend, do you have a king in your life? Are you allowing him to rule and reign? Are you allowing him to be your captain in your life? What about uh, you, dear friend, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you'd go to heaven if something happened to you right now? I don't know, if, Pastor, if I have a king in my life. I don't know if something happened to me right now if I'd be in heaven. I'm not 100% sure. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand let me pray for you?